right. Wow, <clears throat> what an awesome weekend this is. It's great to worship God together, and I welcome all of you at all of our different locations, all these congregations, as you've come together this weekend to worship. You know, David, the one who was the shepherd boy who eventually became the, the uh, second king of the United King of Israel, according to all biblical accounts, had a very special relationship with God. I mean, you can just read some of the Psalms that he was the human author of and sense the kind of intimacy that his life characterized in his relationship with God. In fact, Scripture even uses that phrase, I, I wish we knew all that it meant, but it describes David as a man after God's own heart. And yet this same person, Scripture shows us, fell deeply and horribly into sin. And he experienced horrific guilt because of that experience. Now, just two weekends ago, Pastor Justin Yim uh, introduced us to King David as he talked about facing the giant of lust. And if you've not had a chance to hear that message, I strongly urge you to go online, just click online and listen to that wonderful message. But today, we want to use David's story as a foundation for where we're going in this last message called Facing the Giant of Guilt. But we're going to go in a little different direction and talk about uh, God's cure for the guilt that plagues us. But first of all, I, I want to lay a little foundation. So let's do just a little bit of re review. Second Samuel 11 verse 1 says that when kings go out to war, uh, David didn't. He stayed behind. There was something about his complacency, apparently, at this season in his life that crowded out his commitment. And there's an old proverb that idle hands are the devil's workshop. So is an idle mind. And so as Pastor Justin described, one evening he's looking out from his balcony. He sees a beautiful woman bathing. Instead of going back inside and refocusing on something else, he, he resists temptation. You know, the Bible never tells us to resist temptation. Did you know that? It says resist the devil and he will flee from you. But I would suggest that resisting temptation is a poor strategy because whatever we resist persists. It pushes back at us real hard. And the very act of trying to resist it causes us to focus on it more. I think scripture would teach us to refocus to get our attention on something else, but David does not. And in fact, he sends someone on a fact-finding mission. The servant comes back and says, her name is Bathsheba. And then he adds, by the way, David, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now to this headstrong king, who's accustomed to getting whatever he wants, that is no obstacle. He has her brought to the palace, and what follows is a lurid affair that ends in an unwanted and unwelcomed pregnancy. And that's when David's guilt began 
to plague him. Now, later on in this message, we're going to look briefly at Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, because it is the psalm that describes kind of what David went through after this episode of sin in his life. And we're going to look at that and see how David found the freedom, forgiveness, and the relief that every one of us seeks when we're plagued by guilt because of our sin. But let me ask you, what do you do when you're plagued with guilt? How do you deal with it? Reader's Digest tells about two women who went to visit a friend in another town about 40 miles away. And just as they were getting ready to leave, they noticed that they'd locked the keys in the car. Couldn't get in. The keys were there in the ignition. What were they going to do? This is before the day of cell phones. So the driver, she goes back inside, and although she knows he's gonna be upset, she calls her husband. He's in an important meeting. He's gonna have to drive the 40 miles. He's the only one who has the other set of keys. But about 25 minutes later, one of them notices that the back door is actually unlocked. They could get in and just get the keys, but she says to her friend, what is your husband gonna do? He's gonna be furious that he left that meeting and and blew all this time and drove 40 miles for nothing. She said, well, I'm gonna do what any red-blooded American wife would do. She opened the back door, pushed the lock down, slammed the door shut, left the keys in the ignition. What do you do with the guilt in your life? Well, David had this strategy. He thought he would take care of this with his cleverness and conniving. And so he has Uriah called back from the battlefront. Uriah is a soldier. And he comes back and he thinks, well, I'm gonna get him to spend some days and have some intimacy with his wife and nobody will ever know the difference. The baby may be perceived to be a little premature, but he will never know he's not the father. But to David's amazement, Uriah doesn't go to be with the beautiful Bathsheba. Instead, he sleeps at the entrance to the palace with the servants. And when David questions him about it the next day, he says in 2 Samuel 11, uh, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Wow. A faithful, honorable man. But David will not be swayed from his plan that easily. So now he has Uriah delay his return to the battle lines. He hangs out with him and his strategy is to get him drunk and then send him on home. But once again, Uriah goes and sleeps on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Kind of funny, Uriah has more nobility drunk than David does sober. So finally, King David, in his guilt, in his desperation, stoops to his lowest low. He calls for paper, and he literally signs Uriah's death sentence. 
And in his instructions to General Joab, he says, put Uriah at the very front of the lines where the fighting is most fierce. And then when things are at their worst, have all of your soldiers withdraw and leave him there. He seals it. He signs it with his kingly signet. And he gives it to Uriah to carry back to the battle lines to General Joab. And he says, now God be with you now, be safe. His hypocrisy has grown to an incredible, incredible height. Well, the plan unfolds just as David scripted it. The Israelites attack the enemy in force. And where the fighting is fiercest, there is Uriah And then all the soldiers withdraw, and he is literally hung out to dry, and he loses his life just as David designed it. After Bathsheba's time of grieving for her husband is over, David then takes her to be his wife, and it looks so good on the surface. Months later, the baby is born, and in David's mind, he's probably thinking, in spite of how miserable I've been, in spite of my guilt and the fact that I've been looking over my shoulder every moment, wondering who knows and who doesn't know. And by the way, Bathsheba probably didn't even know at this point at least what David had done in designing Uriah's death. He's covered his tracks, he thinks. His secret is safe. All's fair in love and war after all. But David forgot one thing which we may forget. He forgot about God Almighty who sees all and who knows all. And after the birth of the baby, the prophet Nathan enters the story. And I want you to look together with me at this scripture where it describes the clever parable that Nathan spins, the story where he exposes David's duplicity and sin. Follow along in 2 Samuel 12 as I read. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Can't you see Nathan kind of weaving this story? And he's essentially sort of laying a a trap in this story. He's going to catch David in. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead... He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And upon hearing this story, thinking it's true, that it happened in time and space, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He's going, anybody who would stoop that low doesn't deserve to live. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. 
Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Wow. For the past months, David thought he was home free. I mean, there had apparently been no repercussions. He'd eliminated Uriah. He'd kept the secret from the masses. And as I said, probably even from Bathsheba that he had designed her husband's death. The baby was born and David now, he hoped, could stop looking over his shoulder. But David forgot that the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. 2 Samuel 12 reads, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. My, my, my. What? A gripping story. And how real to life. I mean, have you ever been there in your own life, in your own journey? You know, many people go through life dragging that ball and chain of guilt. Maybe you still remember clearly what happened, what you did wrong. You still feel badly about it. You're ashamed of your part in it. And just like I'm sure David felt, he wishes he could go back and undo or suddenly do differently what he had done on that sordid night. The regret gnaws at you. Perhaps it happened in high school or college. Perhaps it happened in later years. Maybe it was recent, possibly even years or even decades ago. Maybe It was a decision made in weakness or ignorance or fear. But the truth is, the afterburner of that choice still dogs you today. The giant of guilt is a menacing giant. So the question that faces us today, before we come to the communion table, and before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, And all that that means and all of its profundity, the question is, how can we be free and forgiven and no longer live under this load of guilt? Well, the forgiveness and freedom that David found, I declare to you, whoever you are, can be yours this very day. But how? How does that occur? How does that happen? I want us to take just a few moments here and look at that psalm that I mentioned earlier, Psalm 32. I, 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 I love this psalm so much. It's one of the psalms I've committed to memory. I, I rehearse it at least on a weekly basis. And again, Psalm 51 that Pastor Justin looked at with you is, of course, the psalm of his repentance and how he cries to God to create in him a pure heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit with him and within him and so on. But this is the psalm that specifically talks about the result of the guilt in, that he was living with. Let's look at it quickly before we come to communion. 
He starts off, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now he begins by talking from the vantage point of one who's been forgiven. Because this was a reflection as the Spirit of God guided him back upon what life was like before that. But now he starts off by talking about what a blessed thing it is to know that your sins are forgiven and to not have them dogging your heels anymore. There's incredible joy and celebration over the fact that his transgressions have finally been forgiven. But I want us to read on, and I want you to see if these next verses ring true for you when you've struggled with guilt over sin. When I kept silent, in other words, when I was playing the cover-up game, when I was working the scandal, when I was trying to cover my tracks, when I was hoping nobody would find out and I couldn't even confess it to you, God, that's what all that means. When I kept silent, it had horrific repercussions. Look what he says. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. He's talking about the conviction that God was bringing in his life. And I make no mistake, every time a daughter or son of God sins against God, God lovingly brings conviction of sin. That's because he loves us. He doesn't want us to stay that way. He doesn't want us to wallow in our sin or our guilt. He wants us to come to him in repentance. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. In other words, guilt makes you miserable. And let me say to you right now that I believe I'm talking to some people today who are trying to medicate your pain through prescription drugs or alcohol or through all kinds of dysfunctional behavior. You're trying to find some way to get relief from that gnawing guilt that dogs you night and day. I'll never forget hearing Billy Graham say once, he said one of the eminent physicians of our country who works at the Mayo Clinic said to him one day in a moment of just conversation, Billy, I could dismiss over 50% of my patients, I believe, if I could just convince them, if I could just show them, if I could just make them believe that God could forgive their sin. Living with guilt has horrible consequences. And some of you today may be trying to medicate your guilt, but it's like trying to put a Band-Aid on a cancer. It just doesn't work. David was groaning in his spirit, according to this psalm, and he was exhausted by the emotional weight of his sin. But I want you to see in verse 5 how he found the relief, the freedom, the forgiveness that we all desperately need today. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What sweet 
words those are. You forgave the guilt of my sin. So my message today is very simple. It's really one idea. When we sin and when we come to God in true and genuine confession and repentance, the truth of the scripture is that God forgives sin, no matter how horrible. And my desire for you today is that you would not go another moment, another hour, another day dogged by the guilt from some past sin. It saps the joy of life. It haunts our nights with dread. And it sometimes leads us to make even worse decisions. I'll never forget the summer of 1987 for many reasons. We were in a series of crusade meetings with Billy Graham called the Peaks to Plains Crusades. And they were culminating in a huge crusade at Mile High Stadium in Denver, Colorado. And I had worked two of those crusades already, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Fargo, North Dakota, and had flown back and forth and back and forth between those cities, helping to lead those crusades and get counselors ready. But now was Denver. There were 50-something thousand people that evening in Mile High Stadium. It was a gorgeous summer evening. And I had just made a vow to myself that while I normally directed that counseling time from up on the platform after the service was over, just making sure we had counselors in the right places and so on, because I didn't want to lose touch with what the typical counselor was experiencing, I just made an agreement with myself that one evening in every week of a crusade, I'm going to go down and counsel someone, just Just have that experience. I don't want to lose touch with what that's about. And so on this particular evening, I approached a guy. He seemed to be a few years older than me. He was probably about 30 years old. And he seemed to have the weight of the world on his shoulders. But it was obvious as he began to share his story and the tears began to pour down his face, it was obvious that he had come that night to do business with God. So here's the gist of his story. I'll never forget it. It was one of the most gripping, I will spare you a lot of the details, they simply wouldn't be appropriate in this setting, but it was one of the most gripping encounters I have ever had with someone, particularly someone confessing sin to God. The gist was this, when he was a teenager, he had a close relationship with Christ. He was active in the church. In fact, he told me, without a doubt, I knew God had called me to the ministry. He'd called me to vocational ministry. And and I was planning on pursuing that call. But when I was 19 years old, I got my girlfriend pregnant. He said, "I, I just said to myself, selfishly, I don't need this complication in my life right now. And he manipulated and virtually forced her to get an abortion. Well, he felt guilt from that, and it, it, it wreaked havoc in her life and, and havoc in his, and their relationship deteriorated, and they broke up. And, but instead of coming to God for forgiveness and cleansing, he said, I, I just began to make one bad decision after another. There were a couple more abortions in the years that followed with relationships that he had, and He began to abuse drugs and illegal drugs and alcohol, and he just began to go from bad to worse. It was unbelievable. 
But instead of allowing the guilt that he was experiencing that was driving him as he drifted further and further from God, instead of allowing it to soften his heart, he hardened his heart more to God every single time. He said, I kid you not, just a matter of days ago, I sat on my bed with a bottle of Jack Daniels in my left hand with a whole bottle of pills in my right that I knew would kill me. And I was ready to end it all. He said, I hated myself. I hated this God who wouldn't give me any relief from my guilt. I hated everyone. I'd wrecked so many lives. He said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm checking out. I'm gonna end my life tonight. And I said, why didn't you do it? What kept you from doing it? (laughs) He kind of chuckled and he said, well, As the highlight reel of my sins played through my mind, he said that there was another thing in the back of my mind I just couldn't shake. It was a little verse that I'd learned in Sunday school. And it was that verse that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And as I sat there on the edge of the bed, I wondered, could it be true? Could it be true that I could be forgiven for all that I've done in my life and all the people I've hurt and all the devastation that I've set set in motion? He said, I saw an advertisement that Billy Graham was coming to town. And I thought, maybe, maybe I could find God here and maybe I could have my moment with God. And I'll never forget, as I prayed with that man and he confessed his sins to God, just like David, God forgave the guilt of that man's sin and he went home forgiven, cleansed, and free. It was a moment I will never forget. So as we wrap up today, let me ask you this poignant question. How would your quality of life improve? What difference would it make in your life if you knew and really knew that God Almighty would fully and completely forgive every sin? What difference would it make in your life? The truth of Scripture is God forgives sin. Back in the late 1700s, a man named William Cooper had been struggling with this whole idea himself. He just couldn't believe that God could actually forgive all the horrible things he had done. But he finally began to believe that maybe it was true and somehow God would forgive him of all his sins. It took a long time to get to that point. But when he finally accepted that forgiveness, he, wrote, he sat down and penned the words to this classic hymn. I grew up singing this hymn in church regularly. The words go, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Then the chorus goes, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And as we'd sing that in church as a boy, I just thought, wow, 
all their guilty stains. You know what I wonder? I wonder if Christians in the 1700s are like Christians today. And that chorus repeats over and over, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains because we need to be reminded regularly over and over again that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can face the giant of guilt. That by God's amazing grace, he does forgive our sin and set us free. And my question to you is, why not now? Why not today? Why hang on to that any longer? You can find the freedom and release that God desires for you today if you just bring your sin to him. Now, here's how we're gonna do it. In just a moment, I'm gonna turn our service over to our lead pastors. And they're gonna steward us and guide us through this process of communion. But inside of your bulletin today, we put a little sheet of paper. You might wanna find that right now. And we've simply designed that little piece of paper for you to do something that I believe that will be very significant. And whether sin is dogging you and has been dogging you for years or whether it's just something that's just kind of barely on your radar, it doesn't matter the significance of it because God desires to forgive every one of us for any unconfessed sin. I'm gonna ask you to write down on that paper, this is just between you and God, it's obviously very private. I'm gonna ask you to find a pencil, a pen, take something and write on that paper what it is, the giant that you're facing. It might be the giant of lust, the giant of guilt. It might be the giant of pride or fear of death. It might be just fear in general. I want you to write it down. And then before we receive communion together, I want you to just give that over to God. In fact, you may even choose to tear it up at that point and just put it in one of the trash cans that are around where we're going to receive communion but you make this your moment with Almighty God. And let me turn the service over now to our lead pastors.